many of you know uh, one of our elders, Bob Rucker, has been working with World Relief, and it's been he's been been able to share so many different stories throughout this process of working with World Relief, and they've partnered him with a young man from Afghanistan, and he's got a lot of different stories, and it's just been really cool to see how God has been working through that relationship. And recently he was telling us all a story where he's, he was driving, uh, the young man from Afghanistan who's a Muslim, very devout Muslim, um, who, um, uh, down on the road to help him with a few things with his car. And as he was driving on I-20, of course you can see our church here at I-20, and he just pointed out, uh, to the young man that he's become close with that saying, hey, you know, that's where I go to church. Real easy thing. I mean, Bob is not a, you know, engaged in uh, Muslim apologetics by any way, shape, or form. He's just loved him. He's just cared for him. And here, just something so natural as he is driving by, he simply points out and says, Oh, that's my church. Grace coming to church. You can see it. Not thinking much of it. And the young man turns and asks him, he says, Oh, actually quite interested. And then he asks Bob a question. What is it that you do there? Bob said it took him back for a moment. He had to stop and think. What is it that I do there? It's a great question. If someone were to ask you, whether they come from a Christian background or not, as you were pointing out, this is your church. This is Grace Covenant Church. What is it that you do here? My question to you is, how would you answer that question? Certainly there's shallow things that we could say within it. We, we sing some songs. We have a, a guy come put us to sleep with a, a long sermon. All those sorts of things we could do and say. We have coffee. We meet one another. We talk with one another. But at the core, if you're going to really answer the question to somebody who doesn't know what Christianity is, What is it that we do there? It's actually a very probing question. And one that I would suggest that we in our current culture actually a lot of times don't have an answer to. And we don't know. We don't understand. And we haven't been thinking through it. What is it that we're doing here? And I, my suggestion to you is that because we don't actually have a good answer to that question is actually one of the reasons where we, why we see church attendance historically at historical lows in our country. While we see it moving down. While we see churches, I'm just speaking at the church at large here. Churches filled with people with apathy. People really, truly asking the question, why bother? Why bother with church? Why bother giving up my Sunday? Why bother with worship? After all, we live in a world that is filled with the thought of autonomy of self. Why come do this thing called church, which is so seems to me to be so important... Why do it with other people? Why can't I just do it, me and God? Why can't I do it in a way that feels most natural to me? But what we're going to see in this passage and what we would really see throughout 
all of Scripture, as the way that we answer that question, the way God's people, in fact, engage in worship is actually something of incredible importance. It is incredibly important to God, and we're going to see quite clearly in this passage today that he takes it very, very serious. And so from that aspect, we can, we can get some answers. One of the reasons that we take it so serious is because God takes it serious. And that alone is worth us being able to stop and ponder and wonder, what is it that we're doing here? But let me also suggest to you that the way we answer that question actually has profound effects on the way we live our life. Because you, my friend, are made as a worshiping creation. You were made, as Augustine said, by God and for God, and your hearts will be restless until it finds it rests in God. You are made to be worshiping people. So the way you go about your life of worship, you don't just engage in it because God cares about it, but actually, that alone is enough, but actually because it also has profound impacts on you as who you are. It The way you believe and think and engage in worship will profoundly shape you. Not just who you are and what you do on Sunday mornings from 1045 till 12-ish. It will have profound effects on who you are Monday through Friday, Saturday, 24-7. And so we're going to look then at worship this morning. Because worship, my friend, matters. Worship matters. And so we're going to look at, um, we're going to evaluate our culture. Because what we see within our culture is a very me-centered worship. Now, we can really kind of be old cranky people saying, get off my lawn. Look at all these young millennials. Look at all these Generation Y, Generation Xs. But the truth of the matter is, me-centered worship is not something that is isolated to the young. It's not something that is isolated to the year 2023. It's a continuous and ongoing issue that comes to the very heart of our rebellion against God. So we shouldn't be surprised that Scripture itself addresses this very issue. So let's take a look with me in the book of 1 Samuel chapter 2. We'll begin in verse 1. Now keep in mind, um, uh, God has miraculously given Hannah a child. And she has given him back into the Lord. And so now we're beginning to see Hannah's response. We're going to see her worship, if you will. And that's important. That's one of the first things that we can see right off the bat, what worship is. It is a response. And what we see here in her worship is her response to God's initiative, his grace, his mercy. So Hannah prayed and said, my heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none beside you. There is none, no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. 
Let not arrogance come from your mouth, for the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry have ceased to hunger, and the barren has borne seven. But she who has many children is forlorn, and the Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Shiloh and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with the princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's and on them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. For not by might shall men prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. And he will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. And so one of the first things we can observe within this as right here on the beginning is this is what what uh, literary scholars would call a bookend. You see, keep in mind the what are we what we talked about last week. The books of First and Second Samuel are artificially broken in our English translations. They were initially put together as one scroll, as one complete work. The books of First and Second Samuel. And what's interesting that you see in these books of Samuel is they both begin with a prayer of praise and they end with a prayer of praise. It begins here with this front bookend of Hannah's prayer. And it ends with David's prayer as David's life is ending in, in 2 Samuel 22. And so these two prayers bookend the entire work of Samuel. And what you see as well is it's not just that they are both praises and prayers, but when you analyze the two prayers, they're almost identical. Or I should say there's extreme correlation between the two. In fact, Hannah's prayer is in many ways a summary of David's prayer. Whereas Samuel's, Samuel, uh, excuse me, Hannah's prayer is looking forward to what God will do in triumph. David's chair, uh, David's. Um, prayer is looking backwards, looking back on all that God has done. And there's incredible continuity between the themes within them as well. And both of them are basically, keep in mind what I talked about last week, both of them, because what we see in the writing of 1 Samuel, the writing isn't just trying to give us a history of Israel, though it's certainly working from the historical documents, it's an accurate history It is looking through the way God has dealt with his people to encourage them to look forward to God's salvation, to trust in God as their hope, as they're experiencing exile in Babylon, as they're awaiting redemption. So we see on the front end here this prayer of Hannah. It's not just talking, as we can see, about her, uh, about what God has done for her. It actually expands and is even prophetic for what God will do that we're going to see coming up. He's going to, is prophetic in how it is, anticipates what will happen with Eli and his sons. And we'll get to that here in a minute. It's prophetic in the way it talks about, 
uh, the kings. And so you see in this prophetic prayer foreshadowing of what will take place with Saul and David as well. Its occasion is a response of Hannah having placed her hope not in herself nor in the gods of that time. And so one of the other things that you see in this prayer is it actually is polemical. And what do I mean by that? Polemical, it, it is it is essentially uh, throwing out arguments against the pagan gods of that time. Because one of the, the chief rivals of the worship of Yahweh in that time was the Canaanite worship of Baal. And so when you analyze some of the prayer there, some of the things that it talks about, it attributes to God, were actually some of the things that the Canaanites tried to attribute to Baal. And, what, and what Hannah is saying is, no, if you try to trust in Baal, which Baal was a fertility god, so those who were struggling with fertility were prayed to Baal, or Baal, however you want to say it. She's saying, no, God is the one who gives life, And ultimately causes death. God is the one who is sovereign. Not this little petty fight between Baal and Mot. That's not, that's not the reality is the one true God of Yahweh, the one true God of Israel. And so she is making a polemic into the air saying, no, you must trust in the living God. There is no hope anywhere else. And also, if you know your New Testament, you may look at this and this may look pretty familiar. Because what we see, if you're to go into the New Testament Gospel of Luke, you see that Mary's famous Magnificat, her famous prayer of praise, is actually modeled after here Hannah's praise. There's a lot of continuity. There's a lot of similarity between the prayers. That's not accidental. Because as Hannah's prayer wasn't just about her, again, It was anticipating how God would save his people. What Mary is ultimately saying is through the birth of her baby, the fullness of that realization of that salvation is coming about. Now, so we see this fulfilled in Jesus. But what we're going to see right off the bat, and we've already seen a little bit of echoes of this if we were paying attention in the first chapter. Things are not right in River City. Things are not right in Shiloh. And we're going to see in a little bit more depth what's going on. Keep in mind, what happened when Hannah interacted with the priest Eli? The priest assumed that she was some drunk woman. Anna's response was, no, don't think of me as one of those wicked women. And if we were to look at the Hebrew of that in in verse 16 of chapter 1, as she's saying, don't look at me as one of those daughters of Baal. I have no idea if I pronounced that correctly. Just assume I did. And so he's saying, don't assume I'm one of these daughters of Baal. That's important. Keep in mind. Now it says here in verse 12, now the sons of Eli were worthless men. That word there, it literally means they were sons of Belel. So in other words, 
Eli is looking at this woman and there's confusion, there's discernment. This woman who is honoring God, looking to God, giving authentic worship. Eli doesn't have the spiritual discernment to see who she is. She is not a daughter of Baal, but these sons of his, these priests, they are actually sons of Baal. They're wicked men. So there's this irony that's there. And they did not know the Lord. Now, that doesn't mean that they didn't believe in the Lord. It doesn't mean that they didn't believe in the overall worship of Yahweh. They just didn't fear the Lord. There was no fear of the Lord in their sight. There was no relationship with him. And the customs of the priests with the peoples was that when any man offered a sacrifice, the priest's servant would come, and while the meat was boiling, with a three-pronged fork in his hand, and he would thrust it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot, All that the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. This is what they did at Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. Moreover, before the fat was burned, the priest's servant would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, Give meat for the priest to roast, for he will not accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. And the man said to him, Let them burn the fat first, and then take as much as you wish. And he would say, No. You must give it now, and if not, I will take it by force. Thus the sin of the young men was very great. Keep that in mind. Put that in your back of your head. Just hold on to that. The sin of the men was very great in the sight of the Lord, for the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. They treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. And we might, there's a lot of cultural stuff going on back here. And we need to understand, we need to look back into the law. So if we were to go back to Leviticus, one of the things that we could see is the law does provide a way uh, and actually uh, um, tells people that from the sacrifices they are to bring up, they are to have a portion of that to go to the Levite priests. Okay? But, however... What isn't part of that law is the priest choosing what part. In fact, according to the sacrificial system, different parts of the animals were to be used in different ways. And one in particular was that the fat was actually supposed to be burnt up. It was a burnt offering unto the Lord, a whole burnt offering. So nobody was to get that. And so what we see here is rather than in this place of worship, these priests saying, we'll just receive whatever the Lord provides, they have decided, no, 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 no. I want my worship to go the way I want it because, hey, I'm craving a ribeye today. And so what they would do is they would send their servants, who apparently were violent men, to come in. They were bullies to come in with this fork while the people were laying their offering out and boiling it. Say, hmm, I feel like some ribeye this morning, so I'm going to put this fork in and I'm going to get this this portion of this meat. And I'm going to take it and that's going to be mine. And they also didn't want to wait for the fat to get burned off. They were true carnivores. They weren't into all this uh, healthy eating stuff. And so when somebody would come in and challenge them to hold them accountable and say, hey, no, this isn't the way things are supposed to be, what did they do? They threatened them with violence. They were bullies. In other words, they're saying, this worship is going to happen the way I want it to happen. I'm going to get out of this what I want to get. Otherwise, we're going to have problems, buddy. What does it say that says that their sin was very 
very great. Now, it's going to break into Samuel. Why does it break into Samuel at this point? Why does it break? It's because the Scripture is intentionally trying to get us to compare the sons of Eli who were wicked with the one God who would appoint to be the priest. So we're supposed to compare them. We're supposed to see the difference here. And it says um, in verse 18, Samuel was ministering before the Lord. In other words, he wasn't just trying to get what he was wanting. He was truly engaging in worship. Keep in mind, he was a pretty young kid at this time. A boy clothed with a linen ephod. That was just a priestly garment. Okay? There was different types of uh, ephods that were there. Um, This most likely was just a basic priest linen, uh, priestly garment. And his mother used to make for him a little robe and take it to him each year when she went up with her husband to offer a yearly sacrifice. And then Eli, Eli would bless Elkanah. And his wife and say, may the Lord give to you children by this woman for petition. She asked of the Lord. And so when they returned to their home, indeed, the Lord visited Hannah and she conceived and she bore three sons and two daughters. And the boy Samuel grew in the presence of the Lord. Verse 22. Where's where's Eli in all this? We see that this is going on. Is he condoning it? Well, we find out a little bit more, verse 22. Now, Eli was very old. And he kept hearing all that his sons were doing to all Israel. And how they lay with the women who were serving into the entrance of the tent of meeting. So, in other words, not only were they profaning the, the, the sacrifice, saying we're going to get what we want... They were also using their spiritual authority as a way of abuse, tragic abuse, sleeping with women who had come to serve the Lord at the temple. We see that there is nothing new under the sun, folks. As much as we decry and we look at the spiritual abuses within the pastorate sometimes, unfortunately, the fact is there's nothing new under the sun. Spiritual abuse, the bullying that we see in some of our leaders, the sexual failings that we see is deeper, much deeper than our culture. It goes to the very heart of who we are. Verse 23, and he said to them, why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil dealings with all these people. No, my sons, it is not good that I hear the people of the Lord spreading abroad. If someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? But they would not listen to the voice of their father. For it was there that for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. Now the boy Samuel continued to grow in statue and in favor with the Lord and also with men. So what do we see here? Eli confronts them, yes, but it doesn't seem like he confronts them until we hear about the sexual abuse that's taking place. Not only that, he doesn't actually make moves to actually stop them, to end that. He doesn't have the courage to say, I'm going to bring in the people as a head priest to forcibly remove you. He's just going to wag his finger at them. Boys shouldn't do that. That's not good. He doesn't actually remove them. 
Not only that, he says, and, and the argument that he's making there, he's saying, and again, we got to keep in mind, there were sacrifices for unintentional sins in the Old Testament liturgy. There were sacrifices he would offer for unintentional sins that we had done. Okay, But what about when you've done an intentional sin, such as what they had done? Well, there wasn't just a sacrifice that you could do. Now, there were steps within the Old Testament law that would enable there to be a sacrifice, but there had to be, in essence, a process of repentance and of restitution. That's saying in there. So he's saying, if you guys in this willful sinfulness that you're doing, you can't just offer a sacrifice. You can't just say, well, yep, I did this, but I'm going to, I'm going to slaughter this bull. I'm going to give this offering. I'm going to put this money in the plate. Me and God are good. He's saying, no. That's not the way this works, sons. The absence of a contrite heart, the absence of your knowledge that you need grace, that you have sinned against God, your flippant attitude towards all of this, this is going to lead to your destruction. And in their hard hearts, God has now rejected them. But it says here, now the boy Samuel continued to grow both in stature and in favor with the Lord and also with men. And those, those words there, grow in stature and favor, all come from, the, from the, the, the root word in Hebrew of great. So in other words, the sins of the, the children were great. Both of them were great. Some of them were great sinners, but it's saying that Eli, uh, excuse me, Samuel, as the hand of the Lord is with him, God is producing greatness. Now we'll come back to that here in a little bit. And so what we see here as well, if we, once again, just as we looked at Hannah's prayer and we saw that in Mary, with Samuel as well, we would look at that exact same phrase told of Christ in Luke. That he was growing and as he was growing. So what do we clearly see here? Samuel is a type of Christ. Imperfect, but a type, a foreshadowing of Christ. Of who would be the true priest who would come to lead the people in true worship. We'll get back to that in a little Verse 27, and there came a man of God to Eli. This is some unknown, unnamed prophet comes to Eli and said to him, thus says the Lord, did I indeed reveal myself to the house of your father when they were in Egypt subject to the house of Pharaoh? Did I choose him out of the tribes of Israel to be my priests, to go up to the altar, to burn incense, to wear the ephod before me? I gave to to the house of your father all of my offerings by fire from the people of Israel. So why then do you scorn my sacrifices and my offerings that I commanded from my dwellings and you honor, that word honor there in the Hebrew is kavod. It's also sometimes used of glory. But it is very basic meaning is heavy, weightiness. 
So in other words, you have given honor, you have given weightiness of your sons above me by fattening yourselves with the choicest parts of every offering of my people Israel. So in other words, what is he saying here? He's a play on words that we're going to find out in a couple of chapters that Eli was actually very heavy. He was extremely heavy. So why is it that he didn't go and challenge his sons until he heard about the sexual sin? Most likely, and of course we're, we're, we're arguing from what is implicit, he made himself fat. As the boys would get this meat, he would kind of turn a blind eye because he made himself fat on the offerings that were taking place. So in other words, he made himself heavy, he made himself kavod by devaluing, by making God lighter. Therefore, the Lord, the God of Israel declares, I promise that your house and the house of your father should go in and out before me. But now the Lord decries, far be it from me for those who honor me, I will honor and who despise me will be lightly esteemed. Behold, the days are coming when I'll cut off your strength and the strength of your father's house so that there will be not an old man in your house. Then in distress, you will look with envious eye and all the prosperity of the bestowed upon Israel and there shall not be an old man in your house forever. And the only one of you whom I shall cut off from my altar shall be spared to weep his eyes out to grieve his heart. And all the descendants of your house shall die by the sword of men. And this that shall come upon your two sons, Athene and Phineas, shall be a sign to you. Both of them shall die on the same day. And I will raise up for myself a faithful priest. It shall do according to what is in the, my heart and in my mind. And I will build him a sure house. And he shall go in and out before my anointed forever. And everyone who is left in your house shall come to implore him. For a piece of loaf, a piece of silver or a loaf of bread. And shall say, please put me in one of the priest's places that I might eat a morsel of bread to his family to serve as priests. Now, that's harsh. But that's justice. God, what we see here, and this is a common theme that we see in the book of Samuel. God is bringing salvation. He will bring salvation through judgment. He is going to judge, and through that judgment, he will bring his salvation. Okay? That's a common theme that we're going to see. It's throughout the Old Testament, really. And of course, this points us ultimately to the faithful, true high priest who is Christ. This was going to be um, fulfilled both partially and ultimately. It, we're going to see it in a couple of chapters where this is fulfilled. When we see uh, the two sons are killed in the same day, then Eli himself dies. But it's ultimately not going to be fully fulfilled until Second Kings when Solomon replaces that priestly line with a different priestly line. So there's going to be a little bit before it's ultimately, and then, of course, it's ultimately fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Now, as we tap in all this together, one of the things that we see quite clearly that I really want us to tap into today to get out of this is what we see is the danger of me-centered worship in a me-centered world. The danger of me-centered worship 
in a me-centered world. We live in a Western society that is consumed with the self. We are consumed with this idea of self. Our world, and this goes all the way back, all the way back to Rene Descartes, I think, therefore I am. And we have bought into that philosophy so much that there's nothing that exists outside of the self in our own worldview. And that has trickled down into the idea of the therapeutic. And so what we have, what we've adapted into this idea of therapeutic since, and now I'm not against psychology. I've gone to see, I, many times I've gone to see a counselor myself. But what we have bought into in the worldview um, of our culture is that which is most authentic, that which is most important. In other words, that which we need to make the heaviest to give the most attention is how we feel inside ourselves, the therapeutic self. Not only that, we live in a world that is fascinated with our own form of magic, which is technology. It is magic for the 21st century in which we try to ease all of our problems with zero effort through technology. And we do so with the dominance of what? Personal devices. And so the answer to all your need is a new personal device. You know what? You constantly need to be entertained. So you need to be able to have access to Netflix on your phone so that you can watch it while you're waiting in line with the supermarket. Why have to go through those difficult debates on what you should watch on Friday night? Have your own personal iPad so that you can watch what you want yourself. Listen, folks, I'm stepping on my own shoes with that one, okay? And so we live in a world where the answer is autonomy. With that which is most real is how we feel in the moment. So that's trickled into our worship as well. Now, I don't think there's anything necessarily intentionally syncretistic about that. In other words, I don't think there's anything intentional because what do we think? As we come into worship, if we're going to be the most authentic, if we're going to be the most real, we need to place emphasis on ourselves and our feelings, right? And that has crept in and saturated and steered our worship. But keep in mind what I've said previously. The way we view and think about worship ultimately shapes us. It puts our emphasis on ourselves. Now, the good news is with God, with worship... God isn't completely calling us to remove ourselves. In fact, when we look from at, at, at the Psalm of Scripture, the, the, the songbook of Scripture, the Psalms, a third of them are lament Psalms. So we see all kinds of place for being able to take our hardships to be raw and honest, to acknowledge this is the way we feel. The truth of the matter is, and this is the good news, God cares about all of our feelings. And he wants us to take all of them to us or to him. But that's not what we make heavy. That's not what God-centered worship is. When we make God heavy, we're able to see with John Newton 
that my sins are great. I'm a great sinner. And we can give that its appropriate weight. But he doesn't end there. I'm a great sinner, but Christ is a great Savior. And so we can acknowledge our need for him. We can acknowledge our frailty, but that's not where we end. Nor is that what, where we put our heaviness, our weightiness. We move to our weightiness to be this God who is sovereign. And as we encounter this living God, what we find is a God heavy with glory, with power. We see one who loves and interacts with us in a way that is absolutely profound and transformative. We see one and we encounter one with such goodness and love towards us and power to save and our ability that all we can do is tremble before him. And the amazing thing is, as we look to him, we don't disappear, but rather we become more alive than we've ever been. More ourselves than we've ever been. As we look to him, as we elevate God, we find a personal joy because we're able to declare he is the God who saves Not because of what we've done, not because we've earned it, not because of how we're feeling in that moment. Because of of a mighty God. Who has revealed himself in the person of Jesus Christ. He's not just the sovereign God over creation. He is God, our redeemer. He is our everything. So as John Piper likes to say, God gets the glory. We get the joy. He gets the glory when we make him that is which is heaviest, the most transcendent, the most absolute, the anchor of our hopes. Not in what we do, not in what how we're uh, looking to ourselves. Now, me-centered worship, we often look at that and focus that on theology, right? But the truth of the matter is it's far more subtle than that. Because in many ways, some of us, we can come in and we can still engage in me-centered worship. But want it to be filled with good things. In other words, we come in here saying, what I ultimately want is my preference. And so we've come in here not to ultimately worship God, but have we sung the songs that I want sung? And those songs may be great, rich, theologically rich songs. But the question is, are we engaging in the richness of that songs or are we just happy that we got our way? It's not enough to just have one. It's not enough just to have the songs we want to sing. We actually have to turn our eyes off of ourselves and onto the living God who is our salvation. So what is the answer? The answer is we make God the heaviest. I know that's a little wonky English, but yeah. Make God the heaviest. And that begins with the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord. Now what we see in Scripture is this great paradox. The most uttered command in Scripture is this. Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. 
But yet so often what we see in that as God is telling them throughout the Bible, whether it's in the book of Exodus, as the people are afraid of God in the mountain. And what does Moses reply? Don't be afraid. But then he goes on to say, but God is is demonstrating his power that you might fear the Lord. So he begins with don't be afraid. But he says, I'm doing he's doing this so you might fear the Lord. He says the same thing in Jeremiah that he's doing. He's going to remove our fear. But he's going to do so by giving us the fear of the Lord. How does that all work together? The fear of the Lord is when we make God the heaviest, when we see him in all of his glory and all of his goodness. And all we can do is tremble before him. But in that trembling, it moves us towards him. Now, this is hard to explain, and this is the best illustration I can think of to come up with it. And it is 100% imperfect. I know that. But maybe this can help us wrap our minds around it. So roughly about 25 years ago, I had my first date with my wife, right? And I remember in my first date with my wife was the first time that I held her hand, right? Now, as I held her hand, I moved in and we, you know, a smooth operator. I had a coupon for a pizza. So, um, (laughs) so I'm really surprised she actually went on a date with me. And so I've been, I've been kind of planning this, working my way up to, to asking her out to go on a date with me. We've known each other for several months now, been giving her a ride home. So now we're finally on a date. We're watching a movie. And next thing I know, we're holding hands. Now, I am awed by that moment. And as much I don't, as I don't want to look like a, a goofball in front of my kids, but that ship is held. If I'm being honest, you know what I was doing? I was trembling. I was nervous. I was awed at the moment. But did that nervousness, did that trembling make me want to pull away? Not on your life. Not on your life. I was in awe that this beautiful creature would seek to know me, would seek to hold my hand. And I was trembling. I had a certain fear of that moment. Now, that's imperfect. But as we see God lifted up, as we see his glory and his grace, as we see his goodness, it breaks our paradigms and it overwhelms us with his awe. And we need that. Because when we just make it about us and our emotions, that's not going to, that's not going to give us anchoring in our times of, of difficulties. The fruit of me-centered worship, it's selfishness. The fruit of me-centered worship is we close our ears to the conviction of sin. The fruit of me-centered worship is, it, is, it, is apathy. And it leaves us anchorless, anchorless to be tossed about in the seas of our emotions. But the fear of the Lord grips us with God's sovereignty, his goodness, that he is a rock on whom we can depend. So the fear of the Lord is where we begin to make God heavy. The second thing is it begins with a response. 
It's not something that we start off with. It is a response to God's work, as a response ultimately to his Holy Spirit in us, and as a response as the Holy Spirit reveals Christ. Christ, who is the perfect high priest. He is the one who comes into our world, though we are false worshipers that we are people who are carried away by our own selfishness. He was a perfect high priest who laid down the perfect sacrifice, which was his life for the atonement of sins. So that we who were hostile to God, who were enemies with God, could be reconciled to him. Not because we chose him, but because he chose us. What kind of love is this? That while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's the beginning of worship. Recognizing the awe of God, our Redeemer. Sometimes it's said that familiarity brings contempt. What we do here each and every week if it becomes me-centered, it's become, become familiar. When we come up here just to partake of the elements, it can become familiar and breed contempt. But when we come up here with the fear of the Lord and we recognize that in these elements, we see the holiness of God. A God who would send his son Jesus to live the perfect life that we can never live. The God who would give the ultimate price of his life on the cross with shed blood. The God who would ultimately conquer death, our great weapon of our great enemy. That transcends me. 